Welcome back to another episode of the Hitchcock Minute. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1959 Alfred Hitchcock-directed thriller North by Northwest, one minute of screen time per episode. I am Josh Newfeld of joshnewfeld.com. And I'm Fapples Bankschnipple at deanhaspiel.com. <laughs> nice to meet you, Fapples. All right. <laughs> you working under a pseudonym this episode? I was figuring switching it up a little bit. All know? right, then. <laughs> Just right from to, the beginning. You know where to find me at my .com. Right. Your .com gave it away. That's right. So together, we co-host Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean. Yes, we did. Do. Oh, that's right. We still do that? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I thought it's all happening it. now. It's happening. Okay. But today, we are here to talk about Minute 131 of North by Northwest, and I think you were going to give us a rundown. Yeah, so the scene starts with Cary Grant, who plays Roger, grabbing Eva Marie Saint's hand, uh, no, by her shoulder, as two men with flashlights chase after them in the mountain woods, and they run towards the edge of a cliff, only to see the tops of giant heads. Those heads belong to four dead presidents, George Washington... Thomas Jefferson, Theodore Roosevelt, and Abraham Lincoln, more famously known as Mount Rushmore. Wait, Abraham Lincoln was known as Mount Rushmore? Well, the four of them were. Oh, the four of them together. That okay. was their, the dead presidents. Their super team. <laughs> exactly. Was the Mount Rushmore. Uh, the scene ends as Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint crest the cliff to escape pursuit. Yes, indeed. So, do you have any thoughts about this scene or you want to describe more of it? Yeah, I don't know if we should like get into the scene or maybe since this is our first episode right. as a team is step back a little bit and talk maybe a little Alfred Hitchcock. Sure. sure. I mean, everyone else has had their shot, so right. why not us? That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, Hitch. Do you what? like the movie? Oh, this movie? Yeah, great movie. It's one of his best. It's it's one of those movies I saw when I was really young and it kind of blew my mind at the time and I feel like certain Hitchcock movies are good to introduce to kids at a certain age, sure. like suspense and action and stuff. And other movies like Psycho are not maybe great for a 10-year-old, but, right. um, you know, this one is definitely like kind of all ages. I have to admit, you know, you hear the word Psycho and you, you know that, you know, it's a famous horror movie and it shocked people and everything. And when I finally saw it as a kid... I was a little underwhelmed. Really? I have to admit. Really? Yeah. I don't think, I think I was too scared to see it until I was, you know, like late teens. But probably. when you saw it, what did you, how did you feel? I think it was still pretty effective. It was. Yeah, because I, I had pretty much avoided knowing anything about it. So, mm -hmm. like okay. the fact that the heroine dies in the middle was a shock to me. That was great. And then the first scene with the reveal of the mom's body right well no uh, that's the very end yeah correct the very end i mean is, that reveal oh to me yeah was, yeah, yeah yeah was like yeah that's been horrifying. him the whole time yeah well yeah. spoiler sorry yeah that's okay we're not doing the psycho minute that's right but we just ruined it for people who haven't seen it <laughs> <laughs> uh well if you're listening to this in the future um go back and don't listen to the previous 20 seconds wait that that it can't really do that. All right, we'll put something in before this that'll warn people not to listen to the next 20 seconds. No, we won't. Oh, right. <laughs> well, sorry. Though. Well, anyway, it is one of my favorite movies. I actually saw it recently, uh, not for this, this movie, podcast. North no, by Northwest. Movie, North by Northwest, yes. just on my own. And when I saw this again after many years of having not seen it, 
I was pleasantly surprised of the new stuff that you can see in this movie. You mm-hmm. know? Obviously, there are famous scenes in the movie, like the the airplane scene. Yeah, a classic scene. This scene we're covering right now. Mm-hmm. You know, but there's a lot of funny, and it's funny. There's some funny bits, and it was this time around with more adult sensibilities. And I think we were talking about this before we started recording. Is that Cary Grant's protagonist is kind of a Ooh, la la. Mm. He's a little jerky. He's kind of a miscreant. And I know he's an ad salesman, right? Yeah. Or an ad executive. Or an ad executive. Like a Don Draper, Mad Men type. Right. And in a way, I think that was kind of brilliant because what it did is it allowed that type of character with that personality Mm -hmm. to be in in certain kind of situations that he could talk his way out of or, right you know resource his way out of in a certain way you know the, the scene with the auction you mm-hmm. know it was really interesting yeah because you don't know what he's really doing until you realize oh he's i mean i'm sure they've covered this in this podcast yeah and but, covered it very well uh, hopefully <laughs> probably yes you're right josh <laughs> we're playing with time here folks <laughs> But yeah, no, I and I, there were just so many more rich scenes, even when he's getting drunk in the beginning of the movie, and, and that bizarre car chase. Yeah, you know, that's with the rear projection. I love it, and yeah. I wish it did all car chases that way now. You know, like again, <laughs> where the main where the protagonist was drunk, drunk with you know that fake right. you know background <laughs> yeah. happening because it's just funnier. <laughs> you know, well, that is something that is definitely a big part of all Hitchcock movies. Is humor is always in there, but I remember. I don't think when I first saw it, because I really was like 10 when I first mm. saw this movie, and I think I just was totally like stupefied and mm. amazed. Mm. But I think when I saw it later, maybe as a, you know, in my 20s, I kind of was a little thrown off by the humor. Like the way it's brought in at times took me out of the suspense of the movie at various times. It's a hard balance. Do you, do you ever feel that way? Or do you think like he strikes it just perfectly? I think that he's cheeky. I think Alfred Hitchcock's mm-hmm. Dirty Little Secret is that, he, well, not even Dirty Little Secret, because if you watch Alfred Hitchcock Presents, the way he introduced intros and outros those half hour yes. episodes, he's being a silly little naughty man. Yes. You know, like, <laughs> and I feel like that's, that's perfect. actually his persona, mm-hmm. you know? And so he would insert that into into these films. And so I don't think there's anything funny about Psycho, like, not even. Yeah, a I agree. I don't think so. But a lot of his movies have humor. In mm-hmm. fact, I was watching, I, I in that slate of watching Hitchcock with my girlfriend, we came across Frenzy. And, you know, it's about a, a murderer who rapes and strangles women. Uh, which cheerful topic. Which is awful. But there is like a seven-minute scene in the middle of that movie with the um, the chief officer who's having dinner with his wife, kind of like explaining, you know, the details, you know, to uh, probably to the audience that's trying to catch up. Uh-huh. And it's one of the funniest scenes I've ever seen. And I was impressed at Hitchcock's ability to create humor in a very you know cheeky way as i mm. said and and it kind of reminded me of almost like a coen brothers movie in a way you know well, how they balance you yeah. know like menace with humor and comedy and you know, well exactly constantly. i can't imagine the coen brothers existing without hitchcock like they were so clearly an influence on sure uh, i mean he was so clearly an influence on, on them on them you know they could blood simple right and sometimes might you know, as well be a hitchcock movie absolutely and and i feel like sometimes when you see contemporary filmmakers you know who they were influenced by it almost gives you a better sense of how to read and view the older masters mm-hmm. and that know? is a that is a little bit of a problem i have and i i think we've talked about this before when we were talking about like other movies in american splendor is that i have a hard time seeing a movie through through any other lens other than the present moment 
that huh. we're in. Oh. And I think you're able more to throw yourself back into the context of the time that it was made and, and sort of see it in that. And Absolutely. That whatever. If this movie was made in 1959, you're seeing it more from that perspective. Whereas right. I see it from 2020. Right. I have 2020 hindsight. Yes, you do. Um, Especially this year. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's but like, why, I, why I think as I... contextualize? Why can't you do that? Or why it's won't just hard for me. Well, I, I think knowing the things I know and like certainly knowing, for instance, like the way that Hitchcock treated his female his stars, uh-huh. you know, it's pretty infamous that he was pretty Tippi brutal. Hedren, right? yeah, yeah, Tippi Hedren has talked about that. And I know other actresses too. And just the, you know, the portrayal of various types and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to just be like, oh, well, you know, that's the way things were back in the 50s, you know. Right. But I try, you know, it's just like I can't stop feeling the current social and political climate i guess especially in a political and social climate like we're in now so in the scene that we're covering the the last seven minutes of the movie yeah do you feel ultimately that and it's a little bit of a spoiler mm-hmm. we haven't g- gone ahead but do you feel ultimately that maybe eva saint marie should have just saved herself oh eva marie saint <laughs> sorry <laughs> the saint marie would have saved saint um marie would have saved maria saint well i th- now, yeah, let's not talk about that okay. until we get to it. But I don't feel I mean, like joking. I had I'm a problem joking. with of course, it. Yeah, of course. But no, I think in these minutes, there's nothing objectionable about them, right. um, unless you really want to get into like you know women's roles and right. you know a right. fashion victim or something like that. Right. But getting back to Hitchcock and humor, sure. I think my favorite Hitchcock movie of all. It's one of my all-time favorite movies. Is Rear Window mm-hmm. with uh, Grace Kelly and mm-hmm. Jimmy Stewart. And that movie uh, has a lot of humor in it, but mm. it's also super tense and exciting. Mm. And, and what I also love about the movie is the constraint that it's under. Like, And I feel like Hitchcock did that in a number of films where he's like, I'm going to shoot this entire movie inside of an apartment room you my, know, or my on favorite a lifeboat. Mo- or- my favorite uh, Hitchcock movie is Rope. Mm-hmm. And what you're kind of describing is theater. It's play. Now, Rope know? famously has like no cuts or it has like so, very very few what's the deal with that i think at the time the technology was that um you could only shoot 16 minutes of film mm, something like that right before so, you had to change reels right so he timed it and staged it so that every take was about 60 minutes long That's amazing somebody might step in front of the camera right and then they would start it with them stepping out of the camera right and it, se- it appeared seamless wow the, the entire thing i i watched it once knowing that but not being a sophisticated enough viewer to really appreciate it mm. i feel like i need to watch that movie again because i feel like i would definitely listen despite really... like there's a new movie that just came out called 1917 that i believe yeah. is in one take it's oh is that right feel like it's one take oh okay uh, like a two-hour movie or something and i, I haven't seen it yet but it sounds great it's what sam mendez or mm-hmm. But with that trick aside, Rope is one of the best written movies I've ever mm. seen. And you were saying it was originally written as a stage play? No, but it, it just feels, it feels like a play. Way. Just yeah. like, you know, Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs is like a play or Hateful Eight is like a play, mm-hmm. you know? Rear Window is kind of like a play. You could have probably staged that. You know, you know I think a lot of Hitchcock's yeah. best work could have probably done well in the theater. Because it's human interaction and it's, it's like deception. People mm-hmm. lying to each other constantly, you know, yeah. trying to figure that out and then letting the audience in on it. So mm-hmm. the audience wants to tell the protagonist, no, wait, you should have paid attention to this other detail. Right. You know, which is something that I think Hitchcock was really good at was letting the audience in on the secret, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And that builds a suspense, it obviously. Suspense and tension. Yeah. yeah. He had a certain way 
of letting the audience know something that the protagonist of the movie didn't know so mm -hmm. that we were we were really like engaged with the suspense in a way that maybe even the the main character doesn't realize like how much danger they're in. Right. And that's really now that I'm thinking about it that's not really a device that is used very often anymore, right? It's not and it's not, not and not to give away did you see Knives Out? I haven't seen it yet. Okay. I'm very eager to see it. It's a little Hitchcocking. Even oh, though it's cool. like a, you know, it's like It's like a who done it. It's like a who done it. It's like Clue, yeah. the game in a way, you know, but it's better a, than the movie, I hope. Yes. Yes. No, it's a great. <laughs> Doesn't movie. have multiple endings? Uh, uh no. Okay. No, but I really yeah, don't don't spoil anything, anything. cuz I do want to see it. It's great. it's great. And then we'll do uh, Knives Out minute. Just you and me. Yeah, you and me. There we go. For one minute. <laughs> right. That's that's our plan. That's our future. <laughs> um, so other Hitchcock movies I really love. Uh, Vertigo, you know, that's mm -hmm. that's a classic Freudian, you know, super psychoanalytical mm -hmm. movie. Mm -hmm. And The Man Who Knew Too Much. I like the Jimmy Stewart-Hitchcock mm -hmm. combos. So mm -hmm. The Man Who Knew Too Much, Rear Window, Vertigo. And then he also did other ones that I, you know, could think of just off the top of my head that made an impression on me were uh, Strangers on a Train and The Birds. I used to hang out with Farley Granger. So tell us about star that. star of Strangers on a Train, or one of the stars. How is that? Because my godmother, Shelley Winters, her upstairs neighbor, when she lived in New York City and was alive, was Farley Granger. Oh, wow. And he used to come downstairs. He was a, the nicest guy. And, of course, I'm a kid, so right. I don't really know Had you even Farley seen Granger any is. of the movies that... Either of them had been in at that point? I probably had because my father is a cinephile, you mm -hmm. know, and we and he used to sit me down and be like, you have to watch this movie, you have to watch that movie. Right. And if he knew, and I knew I watched Shelley's movies as a kid. In fact, she took us to the premiere of The Poseidon Adventure and had to explain to us how she dies in it, uh, but that it's just acting, clearly, because she's alive, taking us to the movie. Right, you know, right. Prepared us for that moment. Wow. You know? And then Farley was in Strangers on Train. I, I think he might have done two hitch. Oh, yeah, Rope. He's the, one of the stars of Rope. Oh, wow. As well. But, you know, again, 2020 hindsight, imagine the conversations I could have had with him today had it, I known back then and he were alive. I mean, I, you were so stupid. That I you was didn't, dumb. Yeah. I mean, what, that's right. what was wrong <laughs> no, with No, no. What I was was ignorant. Yes. Yeah. Okay, it, the stupid. literal definition. So your godmother was Shelley Winters and your dad famously had had a relationship like a, you know, friendship. like a friendship with Marilyn Monroe. Right. And Jane Mansfield and tons of other blonde bombshells and oh, okay. met Shelley, I think, through Jane Mansfield, actually. Okay, and so, then she became like a family friend, and then when you were born, she, she said, decided I, she was I would like my to, godmother. That's so yeah, cool. That's right. But you you never actually had close contact with anybody who was in. Well, you yeah, Farley Granger was in Rope. But right. I'm trying to I'm trying to make like the Hitchcock connection. Oh right, the Hitchcock. It's connection. sort of like a two degrees of separation sure. as opposed to the normal six degrees. No, absolutely, and and no, I never met. Well, when did Hitchcock die? 70s? And I think in the 70s. And I did watch his last movie, Family Plot, which is, for all intents and purposes, more a comedy than a mystery, hmm. which was kind of interesting. I feel like he was leaning so, towards being funnier in his latter years right. because that was natural to him, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, I see it all he over He definitely work. was very droll. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, maybe we can talk more. I, I have an, a couple of anecdotes about the droll side of Hitchcock. By the way, he died in 1980. That maybe we can get into next episode. Absolutely. Well, I want to say one more thing about yeah, the yeah, scene, please. unless you had some thoughts. No, I, yeah, I definitely want to just break down the scene a little bit more before we move on. Well, one thing I notice is that the scene takes, you know, obviously takes place at night. 
and is lit mostly in a blue hue. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like the henchmen were wearing dark suits, except for these flashlights, you know, mm-hmm. this menacing kind of, you know, color. While Cary Grant shines in a white shirt and Eva pops in a chic orange travel wear. You know, it's probably a design choice so that the viewer could identify them easily from from far shots, you know, from far away oh, shots. Oh, right, right. And that's actually a trick I use in my own comics, you know? like uh-huh. I try. We to were make... just talking about coloring today. That's and right. And we're both professional cartoonists. That's right. And you're working on a project where you're sort of knocking down the color concept. Right. I'm limiting the, the color palette. Right. And making the world a certain kind of hue, which in this case is like a blue hue, which mm-hmm. is, you know, similar to the scene. Blue Hugh, he was one of Robin Hood's uh, band of merry men. So Josh is a failed comedian. (laughs) Failed comedian. And and yeah, so I I use that trick as well in my own comics, which is to like give each character their own kind of primary color or something. Yeah. So when I draw them, you know, small or far away or clumped together, you can identify which character is either doing what or saying something. Right. And in this movie, this movie has been talked about a lot for the clothes, particularly the suit that Cary Grant wears throughout most of the movie. Like he's famous. Well, first of all, he was famous as being like a real clothes horse and always like looking awesome in his movies. So in this film, for most of the movie, he's wearing this classic gray suit, even in the scene where he's shot at by the airplane. And I'm sure, you know, some of our previous uh, teammates on this podcast have talked about his Mm -hmm. suit. But it is interesting that for this latter act of the movie they took him out of the gray suit and he's wearing like this black pants and white shirt which mm-hmm. i think you're exactly right they mm-hmm. were thinking it would help him pop against the side of the of the mount rushmore but it is interesting that a lot of the other the antagonists in the film are also wearing gray suits so it's mm-hmm. like it was such a, a thing in 1959 or 1958 mm-hmm. that a man in a movie would be wearing a gray suit of mm-hmm. some kind or another and and again because not only it was it a way to design the last scene so you could see who's who from these faraway shots? Because you know if you're going to shoot at Mount Rushmore, you got to show Mount Rushmore. And mm-hmm. It's incredible some of the shots I got. We could talk about this later, but are they made up? Was, were they on a set for a lot? Yeah, of let's it? talk like, about that next episode. Okay. We'll tease that. Right. We'll tease that for next episode. Sweet. But yeah, further stuff in this episode. So it starts with her getting with her shawl getting caught on like a branch, and then them like. You know, I guess it's sort of a building tension moment, like, oh, they're not getting away as fast as they could. Well, you always have to stumble in a chase. Right, you always have to. <laughs> so that the bad guys can get closer to exactly. you. Exactly. So, yeah, I was wondering if there was some significance to it other than that, or if it was, like, symbolic somehow that this red or orange shawl is, like, caught in the in the tree and then they, you know, have to leave because they never come back to it. It's not because like... Because they're trying to get rid of some closer when they're dealing with the other aspects of this scene later on. Yeah. I think it's easier to shoot with less... Okay. Cumbersome, you know, clothing. As it's it were. interesting. I wonder then if it was something that was written into the script or it was more like something they figured out when they were blocking it and shooting it. It might have been a thing. blocking thing. Interesting. And then the it's very funny and not realistic because and what we'll get into this mm-hmm. more, but there the premise of this is that Van Damme, the James Mason character, has is so well off that he has this house on the top of Mount Rushmore. And there's also an airfield up mm-hmm. there, a private airfield. And of course, in real life, if you look at the pictures of Mount Rushmore, it's like just a wilderness area. And there's actually like a big rock face that goes up behind even the carved area. So like mm-hmm. if you're looking at it from below, you only see the tops of the heads of the presidents right. and then the sky. But if you look at it from another shot, it's set back and then there's more 
cliff face that goes huh. even farther up. So there's no way that, you know, that makes any sense because the way right. it, it works in the movie is they're just running from his house, basically, and they just get to the top of the monument. Right. Well, supervillains can do almost anything. Yeah. Well, it's supervillains. That reminds me of the scene in Superman 2, I think it was, where General Zod and his his uh, two super cohorts use their heat vision to blast off the faces of the presidents and oh, replace right. them with their own faces. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, there's the Mount Rushmore connection. <laughs> so then, yeah, they. Uh, the funniest part to me is there are moments in this scene where when uh, Roger says, this is no good, we're on the top of the mountain. And she says, what are we going to do? And he's like, climb down, you know, and he actually almost looks like he's excited about it. And also, like the actress at some point, I, I don't know if you felt this too, but they don't always to me look like they're totally in the scene because they almost look like a little slyly humorous themselves like they should be totally petrified and scared right. but there's almost a, like a all right here we go on the next part of adventure like it's like they never push the suspense so far that you're absolutely petrified like they're them. not as afraid they're as, not as afraid as they probably should as be if you were projecting yourself in the exactly situation. yeah right interesting I, I i guess i didn't notice that but i think i'm just so amazed by the design of the scene yeah because of the setting and mm -hmm. i'm looking more at the president's heads i think than, than i'm looking at them, sure you know yeah and i want to say one more thing unless you want to wrap it and save it for oh, the next one yeah go ahead i fell in love with eva marie saint when she played opposite to marlon brando and eli kazan's on the waterfront oh yeah i know that's one of your favorite films it's actually my probably my favorite okay. movie of all time yeah. next to once upon a time in the west you know which uh -huh. is another one i like sure a lot. sure but yeah, it made me want to watch her in more movies than I think I have, because I think I've only seen her in two or three movies. Yeah, she doesn't have a huge body of work, and she's still alive. She's still alive, and that. she's really yeah. beautiful, elegant. There's a sense of dignity in her, mm. you know, that, I don't know, it's all in her face and her body language mm -hmm. and the way she talks. Very, like she has this reserved... Yeah. Is she... I can't remember because it's been a long time since I've seen On the Waterfront, but does she play a similar type of character in that? Um, no. In fact, there's this famous scene where, like, you know, Marlon Brando breaks down a door and forces himself upon her and she's, like, beating him and slowly but surely stops beating him and, like, it's like this unrequited love type mm, thing, like, mm -hmm. kind of like, I don't know, a bruiser Romeo and Juliet type. Sure, movie. sure. So she plays a different kind of character because in this one she's playing a she, double agent or something. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and she has that sort of classic icy right. quality that Hitchcock loved so much in his well, I think in his heroines. I, I mean, I read somewhere and it could be a lie that at some point he had blocked out the scenes so well on paper that he could almost not have to show up on set. Yeah, I heard that he literally would sometimes direct from inside a limousine. Because he didn't <laughs> really care about... About the performance? Uh, well, about directing actors. Uh-huh. He just figured, I cast you, go do something with it. Yeah. But you got to get from A to B in this shot. Right. You know? It's all about the timing. Yeah, timing, yeah. pacing. And I think he was more interested in... That's like the George Lucas uh, that way. style of directing, you know, that famous or i guess infamous anecdote about george lucas when he was directing the actors in star wars and his only direction to them was faster and more intense faster and more intense <laughs> and that was it like that was the only direction you mean just like 
he only would bark out a, like a, a movie. Yeah, he wouldn't something. like tell them about what, you know, how to understand right. what their character was feeling at that time or right. like it was just about like efficiency, right. you know. Yep. Uh, yeah, getting back to Hitchcock, he, he famously had that line, right? That like once he'd storyboarded the film, like it was finished as far as he was yeah. concerned. It was like yeah. his, he was ready to move on. I mean, he was still there to direct the film, but like in terms of where his attention was, you know, he was already on to the next movie. I mean, again, he was probably more of a cinematographer than, than mm-hmm. you know, a director in a way yeah. because of that. And he his output is just insane. Like he was, I know Woody Allen used to make like a movie a year, but his movies like basically have no... No budgets, like the you know they're usually shot in mostly some apartment interiors, and it's very just talky, and there's not no special effects or anything to speak of. Mm-hmm. But Hitchcock was making sometime not only a movie a year, but sometimes two movies a year, and they're some of the greatest movies yeah. you know that we have in the, in in our canon. Well, that probably speaks to the, his preparation process. Yeah, you know? like he literally, and then you know you hear famously about Clint Eastwood comes in in time and under budget often, mm-hmm. you know, and he does one or two takes. With the actors, and that's it. And that works for him, and it works for the I people think he so, works and with. I like yeah. his movies, so it seems to work. He's a little hit and miss for me, but I mean, sure. they're always professionally done yes. for sure. Yes. Yeah. So just to finish off this scene, you know, it's amazing, and again, it speaks to that era, but like that Eve Kendall character, she starts to go down. They're like, we got to climb down these sheer face, giant faces of presidents. And she's wearing white gloves and she keeps her pumps on while she goes down the mountain. That's right. And then, no surprise, they end up like dangling from a a precipice. Right. And it's really sort of like, what's going to happen next? Are they are they planning on like dropping thirty feet and then they're going to get down from there? Or like, so, in putting I'm yourself anxious in, to know in their shoes and gloves. Yes, <laughs> um, I did notice, and it's it starts here in this minute that you see that parts of the sides of the mountain or the carved mountain mm-hmm. has grooves in them. Yeah, I was wondering, is that true? To the real I think it is because I've seen some pictures. We'll get more into it maybe mm. next episode, but I've seen pictures of the way that they carved it. Mm. And it was with these giant power tools, basically, where they were just like hacking at the granite of the cliff face. And, you know, obviously no one's going to see the monuments from, from as close as they are in this film. Oh, right, right, right. So you're seeing them from far away and the details all kind of come together. But right. I think there is like a lot of roughness and those long, jagged lines. So that I think was very true. Which also true. is helpful to. If you have to climb up and down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's true. I don't think it was intended for that, but that was the effect. So, and also I wondered if you thought there was any significance that they climbed down between the heads of Washington and Jefferson, or is that just uh, expediency for, you know, that was like, it looked like a good spot for them to actually try to escape. I think we're going to have to ask the filmmakers. Okay. So I'll, I'll call Hitchcock and you call Cary Grant. Yeah. We'll get back tomorrow. We'll get back to it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just curious to know what happens next, because I don't know if they're planning on actually climbing down or if they're just hanging there and hoping that Leonard and Valerian just don't see them and then give up and go back home again. Like, are they actually thinking they're going to climb all the way down to the bottom or are they just hoping to kind of hide? That's a good question. I think we need to watch the next scene. Yeah, I agree. Next minute. Yes. So I think that wraps up this, our very first minute of the Hitchcock Minute podcast. Before we let you go, we wanted to tell you a little bit about our own podcast, Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean, where we recently just finished our first season covering the movie American Splendor. 
But we had a lot of fun talking about American Splendor, the movie from 2003 about Harvey Picar and directed by Sherry Springer Berman and Robert Polcini. And we broke that movie down scene by scene. So there's 30 episodes, plus we have a bunch of bonus episodes because we interviewed a whole bunch of people involved with the film in various ways or involved with Harvey Picard. Including the producer, some of the actors, some people involved in the animation, Mm -hmm. uh, a whole bunch of folks, people who portrayed other people and the real life people. And we're hoping maybe to get a couple of more to kind of like have this beautiful jewel box of American Splendor in yeah. you know, the movie. Like a real keepsake of the whole first season. But what I also loved about doing that season of our podcast was we also talked about what it was like growing up, wanting to be cartoonists. Mm-hmm. Kind of like Ahari Picar, you know? Because Picar, for those who don't know, yeah. he hailed from Cleveland, Ohio, and he spent a good majority of his life, I'd say a good 30 years or more, mm-hmm. writing about his life. And just his observations and the people he met. I mean, he's also famous for writing about jazz and other things. Right. And he's famous in the 80s for being on the David Letterman show as a guest. That's right. But the majority of his comics work was about true life stories, you know, which also inspired other cartoonists to write in a memoir style, including yourself and me and Josh and other people. And so we break that down as well in this podcast. We talk about that. And what makes us qualified to be talking about American Splendor and Harvey Picar? We both drew American Splendor stories. Oh, right. That's the (laughs) key thing I forgot about. (laughs) Uh And I also drew what would be considered like an origin story, a graphic novel called The Quitter. Which you did in collaboration with Harvey. With Harvey, published by DC Comics under the imprint of Vertigo. And And didn't you... In addition to that, didn't you have something to do with the film actually getting made? I'm yeah. trying to remember now. It was my idea. <laughs> what? Well, I'd been working as an assistant to movie producer Ted Hope at the time. Mm-hmm. Of and, Good Machine. Of Good Machine. Yeah. And now he's basically the director of Amazon Films. He's the head of Amazon Studios. That's right? right. Yeah. But at the time, I was his assistant, and I came across a bunch of scripts, and I realized, oh, he's a comic book fan, because he had some scripts that were of comic book movies or adaptations, mm-hmm. and they were alternative stuff, like American Splendor. Mm-hmm. So I was concurrently, occasionally drawing Harvey Picar stories, and I said to Ted, hey man, like, it'd be really cool if you made an American Spender movie, and he was like, yeah, can you get me in touch with Harvey Picar? He'd been hoping to make one for years, and that's just right. never really found the in that's right. with Harvey and his wife, Joyce Brabner. So that, that's part of the story, if you go listen to our podcast, Yeah, as well as, like I said, the ins and outs and what it's, it was like growing up in New York City mm-hmm. with dreams of becoming a cartoonist. Both of us now being professional cartoonists. That's right. And a lot about Harvey Picar. And Josh did an amazing job of like literally breaking down scenes, finding the minutiae, the things that, you know, how the sausage is made. And then I added my own insights as well. Well, thank you. And it's a great trip through that whole oeuvre of indie movies and storytelling and multiple iterations of various things, you know, comics being turned into movies, being turned into plays, being turned into podcasts. Mm-hmm. And it's we had a lot of fun. And we talked to an amazing group of other, like we said, uh, Judah Friedlander, who played Toby Radloff in the movie, and James Urbaniak, who plays Robert Crumb, and Alex Robinson, Ed Piscor. Yeah, yeah. You know, a whole bunch of folks. A whole bunch of folks were guests. Whitney Matheson was a guest. That's right. So, yeah, if you're interested in Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean, you can find us at scenebyscenepodcast.com, where all our episodes are archived, as well as lots of artwork and things related to the film. 
And we're on the Apple Podcasts and Google Play and all the other podcatchers and Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean on Facebook. So about this show we're doing now, remember, you can find the Hitchcock Minute podcast on Apple Podcasts and Google Play or at the main site, hitchcockminute.com. And on the social medias, we are available at The Man on Washington's Nose on Facebook and on Twitter at Hitchcock Minute. So join us tomorrow here on the Hitchcock Minute. Goodbye, Mr. Thornhill, wherever you are.